I was um, remembering this evening a friend who uh, I spent some time in Asia doing Dharma practice with. And after some time uh, practicing there in monasteries, he came back to England rather uh, inspired and excited about his practice, or about the possibilities of Dharma practice rather. And he found that he was, he got rather frustrated trying to explain to people what he was doing. And he'd start to talk about the various lists of the Buddha, the five thises and the three thats, and was kind of frustrated to find that people didn't really understand or didn't see the point of it or thought it was uh, strange or weird or something. So in the end he came up with a very simplified version for explaining what he was doing. He called it happiness training. Rather more simple than the eight thises and the five thats. We could think of it maybe even more as wake-up wake training. as what we're engaged in. I think sometimes it's helpful to be as simple as we can about what we're really engaged with. So that this uh, movement of teachings and practice, and particularly in terms of the aspect of teachings, isn't something we're trying to um, remember or build up a bank of information, but rather that teachings and practice just become part of the support structure for applying them to our life, for waking up. And that those two really go together. Practice without teachings, it would be like... um, trying to explore unknown territory without a map. And yet teachings without practice would be like studying the map, getting excited about the precision or intricacy of the map without ever exploring the land. And so... Teachings try to point to my certainly my endeavour here is trying to uh, describe map uh, map if you like the terrain of inner life as best as I'm able and especially to communicate my own passion for walking the terrain for exploring the inner life <coughs> for the practice of freedom. wake-up training. Waking up, the Buddha described in terms of seeing clearly into the nature of things. That's seeing clearly that I was talking about this morning as these two wings of practice, shamatha, vipassana. Vipassana means to see clearly into have insight into. And I'd just like to talk a little bit about insight, about some of the ways that happens and some of the types of insight. Sometimes seeing into can be so clear that it really does the job. That means insight, which is the understanding that makes a difference. It's not a good idea. It's, ah, 
basically aha. Aha is very good translation for insight. That seeing into that one knows this is clear seeing. It's not maybe it's like this, maybe it's like that. Oh, that sounds reasonable. It's aha. It's like how could I not have seen this before? One of the ways the Buddha described insight was seeing something as clearly as seeing that one's hand is attached to one's arm. Aha! <laughs> it's like, oh! Seeing that's as clear as colour to a person with good eyesight. There's another way he described it. Another quality of insight is that it's like we recognize that somehow we already knew that. But it was just kind of buried beneath layers of habit. It was buried between under layers of kind of unconscious reaction to things that we were that we didn't realise was happening, that we were powerless to control, and therefore there was no room for the clear seeing. <clears throat> but sometimes and generally, well not always, but generally, when there's some real receptivity and brightness in the mind, the very seeing into <coughs> what's happening can be enough to do the job. I'll explain what I mean. And I like to use the simplest of examples. If you've heard me talk before, and I go on about knees rather a lot, because knees tend to be meditators' constant companion. For others, it's backs or shoulders, but same thing. We can have been struggling with knee pain for some hours or days or lifetimes. And yet, it can, it can be that as we notice the kind of built-up layers of the experience, the physical discomfort, and then we start noticing, what am I doing with the physical discomfort? Notice the way I'm resisting it, pushing it away, wishing it wasn't here, making a big deal out of it. There's a whole movement in time of how long I'm going to have to put up with this for, and whatever else may be going on. So the process basically of turning some thing called discomfort and heat in the knee into a whole big story. It can be that if we see what we're doing so well, there's enough insight in it to actually completely drop it. Completely drop the resistance. They are holding on to an idea the whole issue, so that right there and then, it drops away. And there can be some movements of the inner life where that can be, so, where the seeing is so clear that it not only drops away then and there, but one knows this can't get a grip on the mind anymore. One knows it. That's seen through. I've seen that the painful thing I've been doing with that, in this case the knee pain, so well that it can't get a grip on me anymore. Because that's the nature, really, of seeing. What we're seeing is the painful affect. You know? The way things get a grip on us. That's what we're interested in having insight into. The things that seem to be between where I'm at and a free condition of life. And so seeing into the way in which there's this contraction, this tightness around experience, if we really see that we're holding tightly to something and that it's painful, if we really see that, the natural response of the being is to stop doing it. Naturally. We talk about letting go a lot in this kind of tradition, as if letting go is something I should do, would be a good idea for me to let go. 
actually insight is what does the letting go. If we can't see that we're holding on, we can't let go. If there's real clear seeing, oh, in this case of that kind of difficult, contracted, struggling relationship with the knee pain, if we really see the struggle, naturally, we stop doing it. And may experience that sense of seeing something clearly enough that it's now ah, oh, and it drops, it dissolves, it falls away. And in the moment of seeing is the moment of freedom from the problem. Sometimes insight's a bit more partial than that. There's some seeing, they know, oh, I've, I've got this problem, and I, I can see it, but it's still there. I'm aware of it, but it's still there. And people will come sometimes as if it's my fault, in an interview, as if you know, I've made some claim that if you're aware of something, it'll be better. And people will come feeling they've been cheated. I'm aware of it, but it's still there. If something is still impacting on our life painfully, there's something we haven't seen about it. This is a law of the universe. If there's something that's still impacting, it's still got a charge, there's some way we're still invested in it. There's some aspect of it that hasn't been digested. And so it's still got a charge. It still keeps impacting. There's something we haven't seen about the way we've got a tight or contracted relationship to it. It's like if we've had an argument with somebody. And after, after we've had the argument, it's kind of weighing heavily on us, maybe. Because it hasn't been digested. It's still kind of active in the system. And therefore it still keeps imposing itself on our thoughts. And yet after some time, when it's settled, when it's digested, and it's dropped away, it doesn't impose anymore. In the same way, if there's any aspect... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> if there's any aspect of our experience that isn't digested, that we're still kind of caught up with, something historical, something habitual then it'll keep on showing up in life. And that's why we talk about this, uh, this perfect gateway that I've been uh, mentioning, maybe even going on about over the last few days. Because the fact that something's showing up in our consciousness shows us that it needs attention. Shows us that there's something held around it something tight around it. And so that process of seeing into, process of insight, if we're seeing something that feels true about our habitual behaviour, about whatever it is, but it's not enough to really take the problem out of it, then it asks us to keep looking. <coughs> asks us to keep looking into. Because sometimes the reason we feel cheated in that looking is that we have an agenda that goes along. We say, okay, I'm going to really be with this. I'm going to really be aware of this. I'm going to really see into this so that it'll go away. No. We make a bargain with our experience. Okay, I'll be aware of you so that you'll leave me alone. That's putting polite spiritual term called being aware of on an uncomfortable spiritual truth called being aversive towards. No? 
It's like, I don't like you, I don't like you. But Buddhist teachings say that it's not good to be resistant, so I'll be aware of, so that you'll go away. It can be really quite a humbling thing in our practice to really consider that to genuinely, to genuinely attend to our experience means to make no demands upon it. To really allow what we notice in our physical experience, our emotional experience, our historical experience, whatever it is that's showing up, to really allow it to be here means to not have any agenda about what it should do, what it should turn into, how long it should last, where it should go. If there's any whisper of pushing, of insisting, then that very whisper is part of the charge that keeps it acting problematically in our lives. And enough myself in practice, I found that to be something sobering and something extraordinary, like, like a guiding compass. If I'm in touch with something that I know to be true, and yet it's keep, it keeps acting, it keeps getting some problematic grip, then it's asking me to allow it more. To let it be here more is what gives the opportunity to see it more clearly. Whatever it may be, physical experience, emotional experience, historical experience. So sometimes that seeing into can be brilliant, means bright, clear, like a laser that really goes to the heart of the matter. And the, the we know that it's gone to the heart of the matter because of the freedom that comes with it. The freedom from the problem that's in the seeing. Sometimes that, that insight, that seeing into, is partial. It's like, ah, we've got the thread of it. But it asks us to keep looking. And it may be that that's repeated many times. It's some issue that we say, oh, I've seen this, though. But if it keeps coming back, it's saying, please see a bit more. And sometimes, insight seems to work in a rather mysterious or more subtle way, that it's not until we look back that we notice that the difference has been made. As I said, insight is that, that which makes a difference. And sometimes we look back and we think, ah, oh, that issue that used to get me, catch me, make things complicated for me, it just doesn't catch me in the same way anymore. And sometimes we might not have a sense in our being here even of exactly what the benefit is. We might have a sense of being confronted by our lives without knowing how to navigate through that. And it's extraordinary sometimes people that later on when one feels the fruits of some letting go, of some process freeing up, of some ease and expansiveness that, of being that's possible, and one looks back and says, ah, oh, that insight, that process of freeing up started however many months ago or however many years ago. It started when I felt that thing or when I heard that teaching. And we can't really, it's not this kind of bang, flash, see it clearly, let it go. But something that's working more kind of gently in the being. 
And that, I think, is the only real reliable measure of a sense of what we could call spiritual growth. It's not very helpful to be measuring our practice as we go along. As if we plant a seed which we want to grow into the flower of liberation. And then every only sit diligently every morning, the equivalent of giving some water and sunlight to the plant, and keep digging it up to see how well it's growing. The very process of keeping examining, oh, what's the, what's the benefit? How much, is it, how much progress? Really interferes with the process of that flowering. But if there's that diligent attention, giving water, giving sunlight, taking care of one's experience, bringing what we've been calling connection, curiosity, care, which is the nutrition of spiritual growth, then extraordinarily that flowering happens. And we look back and it's a kind of mysterious process by which this little seed grew, flowered, blossomed. So rather than trying to dig up our progress as we go along, I would say, after some time, to look back on our practice and see, (coughs) has there been some flowering over the last year, or the last two years, or the last... 10 years or whatever it's been and if there hasn't been please find something else more worthwhile this obviously isn't the right practice for you but if there has been then that just the, the sensing that can be very very nourishing for the willingness to keep doing this inner work which is pretty hard to do sometimes. It's kind of hard to face one's life. And so recognizing the flowering that takes place in it can be really sustaining for that. And so insight seems to work in these three ways this kind of penetration of the issue that dissolves it. And there's this kind of touching in and that there's more to see. And that it may need many, many times of seeing this. Ah, and I've seen this again. Ah, and here we are again. But the willingness to contact it afresh because what we saw about it yesterday isn't going to do the trick today. Yesterday's insight is old It needs to be seen here, now, in this expression of it. And then, as I say, this kind of more gentle unfolding or flowering process, where we look back and see, ah, that's just dropped away. And, the, and we could, maybe a little clumsy, but we could kind of divide it inside into several types, which are, I'll call uh, personal, impersonal, and ultimate. So sometime, and I think it's important to mention there may be the suggestion in personal, impersonal, and ultimate that they're linear in some ways. Or we deal with the personal stuff, then we hit the impersonal, and then bingo. But it doesn't necessarily work like that at all. <coughs> personal means that we're confronted in, our, in the process of looking into our life by the stuff that's about me, my history, my current issues, my family background, my 
tendencies, my habit patterns, whatever they may be. And we've been talking over the last days about not preferencing our type of experience. I spoke this morning about that when objects of awareness are there, not trying to move away into some uh, larger space, but actually honouring the object of attention. And often those objects of attention are about the stuff of self. Maybe the, certainly one of the central issues of self into which we have insight as we go along is the tendency to self-sabotage. The tendency to build up very high expectations of ourselves. The tendency to criticise ourselves. The tendency to measure all the things we're doing wrong or the ways in which we're doing them wrong or how we should be doing them right. <coughs> the tendency to contrast where we're at with this miserable condition here with where we could be. You know, the, like the golden guy. Uh-huh. And then to and then to experience a whole bunch of pressure and tension to get there, to be there, to be better than we already are. <coughs> and that process of self sabotage may we may experience in a very direct uh obvious, crushing, agonizing way. We may experience it in a, in a much more subtle way. The, um, the figure of self-sabotage may be a kind of angry, ranting figure. It may be a cold, hard figure. It may even be a kind of uh, encouraging, uh, slimy figure but it's really worth listening out for one's own particular take on self-sabotage because it's one of the principal things that gets a grip on our life and makes it feel tight small and even inescapable makes the boundaries of self feel inescapable because it's constantly telling us how we are how we should be, and building up, building, literally building the prison of self, moment by moment. So we can to see into the what we could call the mechanisms of self in this way, to listen out for the voices of description. I don't mean just the neutral descriptions of, oh, the bell's ringing. But the, more the, the description, the evaluation, the measuring, the judging that's so often going on. And to see if we can actually just know the judging thought as a judging thought, the evaluating thought as a valuing thought, without needing to take it on board as a description of who I am. To have insight into that voice is to really liberate ourselves from an extraordinary amount of tightness, of control, of expectation, of pressure. Because one of the things about that controlling mechanism is we can never manage to live up to it. Its very nature is one of pressure. And sometimes it may be even telling us, oh, we're doing pretty well. That kind of cajoling voice, oh, the guy next to me is nodding off, but... uh, me, I've really got the hang of this meditation stuff now. 
And maybe the, the, the putting oneself down and maybe the building oneself up. Both of them equally. The one in the moment, the one building up feels better than the other. But the building up and even the good feeling that come with it need a constant kind of reinforcement, reassurance. And of course, as soon as some, uh, something comes in that doesn't conform with that image of things, crashing down again. This mechanism really, the, the, really needs not just the looking, not kind of observing as insight, but what I've been, this care that I've been emphasizing. To actually feel insight is always into the painful mechanism. When we see how something's painful, when we really see the way in which something's painful, the natural response, as I said earlier, is to let it go. But to see how something's painful, we have to care for it. Care is the movement that allows suffering to be there. So when there's some mechanism, my life, my expectations, my history also, something about my life, in order to see into it, in order to see the painful affect, in order to see what it is in that that's keeping the issue going, I need to look into it with connection, curiosity and care, which are the uh, I was going to say the foot soldiers of insight. This sounds a dreadful. I can't think of the operatives. The I don't know what. The, the energy. The energy. To what makes it happen. Sometimes insight is into. life in such a way that doesn't have anything to do with me. And I think it's important not to preference one over the other. Buddhism tends to be a great celebrator of not-self. So anything that's in the world of self can sometimes be a bit, oh, we'll push that aside, that's just the nasty old business of self. And what we're in true is the kind of great big world of not-self. It's important, as I say, not to preference that. In trying to be with the not-self, it's more of that subtle aversion. But sometimes what we're in touch with, what we're looking into, what there's aha insight into, isn't anything that's got to do with me. It's not about my mechanisms or the stories I tell myself. It's about something vast or deeper or more something more essential than just me and my life it's about the way things are in Buddhist teachings pointing a lot towards the fact of change as one of those things that insight into really makes a difference and the change isn't about me, even though when I look at my life, I can find change there as well. But it's actually feeling into, having insight into, the fact, the nature of change. Insight, I'm saying, is that seeing which makes a difference. It's not taking on Buddha. Yes, everything's changing, I can go along with that. Actually, recognizing in an extraordinarily clear way, remember the Buddha's 
thing about the arm and the, the hand and the end of the arm, that clear, seeing change that clearly, moment by moment, even one can, one can access it cellularly in one's body. No? And we have experienced actually witnessing cellular life happening. We're just being outside among the trees and the birds, kind of feeling the trees growing. There's a kind of sensitivity, particularly that's built up through the silence in this kind of environment, that doesn't have to be happening in this kind of environment, where one just feels into the flux, the aliveness, the movement of life. And feels into it, means has insight into it, in such a way that it makes a difference to the way one relates to life, to the sense of relationship with life. And insight, in that kind of, you could say kind of altered state, or... Um, heightened awareness or something in which one maybe senses cellular life or, or feels the tree growing or, or some other example and the moments where there's a deep contact with life that kind of insight carries with it as well as the beauty of the experience it carries with it a responsibility Responsibility in the conventional sense and a response ability, an ability to respond. It asks us to live in the light of that understanding. Because the quality of the experience will have to change. It wouldn't even be that practical to be constantly aware of the kind of subtleties of the cellular level of the body going blub, 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 blub. When we're trying to chop vegetables. Mm -hmm. The quality of the experience has to change. And yet, the insight isn't about the quality of the experience. And this is a confusion we can easily and often make because the quality of the experience, any kind of heightened experience where one's appreciation or one's depth of contact is really brought out, it feels beautiful. It feels extraordinary. It feels, God forbid, special. So, wow, I had this really special experience. And what can easily happen is that the real fruits of the experience, which are wisdom, the insight that makes a difference, get lost. Because we got so excited about the quality of the experience, the fact that it felt good, the fact that it was different. Huh? It's extraordinary how much we can associate spiritual practice the kind of real, real stuff of spiritual practice with special experiences. I mentioned my, one of my favourite lines of the Buddha in one of the groups today. He says, Foolish people seek after experiences. The wise seek to understand the nature of experience. It's a fantastic line. And we have to look for ourselves and see how much are we interested in what we call our spiritual practice in provoking some particular, some special, some other, some different, some groovy, some cosmic kind of experience. And how much are we really interested in meeting and seeing into this very experience? Because the nature of this experience is our access to the nature of life in general. And the good news of that is that any experience will do. 
that this very one here is the one. Why? Because it's here. All those other experiences we'd like to have, they're not here. And so they're not an opportunity for us. So the responsibility of insight is rather than getting hung up on the quality of the experience and then hijacking our meditation practice in trying to have that lovely experience again. The responsibility of it is to live in the light of that understanding. If we've seen for ourselves, not as a good idea, but if we've seen for ourselves that this is a way in which life is constantly in flux, or if we've seen for ourselves in contact with nature or in some intimate moment with life the way in which the usual boundaries of self and world aren't so real sensing what we were talking about last night as the interpenetration of everything then that asks us to live in that way to orientate ourselves in that way to bring that understanding into our relationships to meet our life in remembrance of that. To meet our life in remembrance of change or in remembrance of interconnection. So that we, we apply insight to our life. Otherwise, It's not much different than going on a roller coaster or eating chocolate cake, whatever you like to do. Hmm? Having some great spiritual experience where everything's shiny and the trees are growing and it's all changing is no different than any other exciting experience which may be eating chocolate cake or going on a roller coaster or probably have much more exciting experiences than that in mind but it's not any different unless we apply it unless we live in the light of that and that's our real spiritual practice meditation is a rehearsal for that And then sometimes, regardless of one's personal insight, regardless of one's impersonal insight, that means regardless of one's understanding of one's psychological mechanisms and history, and regardless of one's understanding of the nature of things and life, there's sometimes access to ultimate insight in which we touch into somehow the fact that life is in a free condition don't know how to say much more about it than that but that somehow we touch into the very fact that all the things I've that seem to be problematic in life. And they may be about me and my history and that whole psychological world. They may be about other people and all the wrong things they're doing to me. Or they may be about life in general and all the wrong things that are going on. But all of the things that seem to be in a problematic condition in life, in the flash of ultimate insight, reveals a perspective in which life is utterly free. Notwithstanding 
the human difficulty, the inner psychological difficulty, the outer difficulty with people, and the difficulty of the world in general, notwithstanding, and not denying. But somehow, life and one's very participation in it is a completely free process. And some spiritual traditions will point endlessly to that, rather beautifully, reminding us of free condition of life. Yes, but I've got this problem, free condition of life. And yet that too can become a limitation. Because as I say, it's not a linear process. One of my teachers described ultimate insight as the beginning of being what you really are. Which I thought was fantastic. The beginning of being what you really are. Not the end. Not the complete summation of things. Not the burying of one's head in the ultimate sand. And say, oh, everything's free. Nothing to do. may well be that really understanding the free condition of life which is an accessible insight to us always because life is always free is actually the ground from which there's the free condition to really attend to the stuff of the personal to the stuff of life and the Buddha talks about a whole process of refinement of spiritual practice based upon ultimate understanding often we have some view of oh, a bit better we'll work on this issue work on that issue in the hope that we're pointing towards some kind of Bang, flash, ultimate insight, and then enlightened retirement. (laughs) But in what the Buddha calls stream entry, which is knowing the nature of life, clearly, what we could call ultimate insight, is the beginning of living in that. And that there's plenty of attending to the stuff of life. In, in Buddhist language, attending to greed, hatred and delusion. Attending to the conceit of I. In contemporary language, attending to the stuff of self. Seeing life is in a free condition radically alters the way we understand life and the way we meet life. But except in very, very, very rare cases, it doesn't seem to be enough to stop us getting caught up in historical stuff, psychological stuff, emotional stuff. It's an invaluable perspective But it would be really a shame if we got so excited by the Big Bang, by the vast empty ground of being, that we forgot to attend to the fact that we've got a mind and a body and we're asked to live in it. I remember Ramdas speaking about this, about the, the kind of excitement of the vast and the impersonal. And he said the message he got was, you're in school, try taking the curriculum. (laughs) However vast that ground of being, we're asked to meet it with a body and mind. So the, 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 the 
juice of this practice, or the engine of this practice, is in bringing as much sensitivity as we can to what stands out. Maybe the stuff of the personal, it may be the stuff of life itself, it may be the recognition that right now, in the very function of consciousness itself, is something limitless, immediate, wide open and free. And the fruits of this practice are the understanding of those realms that make a difference. A difference to personal life. A difference to understanding the nature and movement of life. And a difference to knowing the very ground of being. So may our practice bear these fruit for the deepest welfare of each one of us and of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.